Back at chapter 2, we'll start in verse 6 and go through the end, um, verse 20 this morning. Let's pray before we read God's Word. As we hear your word to us this morning, Father, I ask that each one of us would be um, transformed transformed even uh, one degree of glory this morning. That by the power of your spirit, we ask that you would firmly root and, and establish your people in Christ and establish us in faith and that we would abound in thanksgiving. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and on his perfect merits. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and read God's Word. I'll read aloud if you would read silently. Habakkuk chapter 2, 6 through 20. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him, saying, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and for violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have fortified your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk, in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Amen. This is God's Word. Paul concludes Romans chapter 11 in in verse 36 with these words, For from Him, that is God, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. I don't know about you, but I can read the, the Bible and read over statements like that and just move on rather quickly. I really think, however, though, that that the pursuit of Christian maturity is in some ways an exercise in massaging this very truth into the fibers of our hearts. 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever. This is a a paradigm-shattering, life-altering, worldview-shifting verse, if we really understand it. From him and through him are all things. That means he has conceived, he has decreed, he has created, and he sustains everything that is. Everything that is finds its genesis in God which is a gripping truth in and of itself. But the real worldview changer in this verse, in my opinion, is these words, To Him. To Him. To Him are all things. All the things that He has made are to Him. Those words are so powerful to change the way we think and live. And they're powerful because it shifts the center of the universe from us and on to God. It's like that shift from the geocentric worldview where the earth is, is the center of our solar system to a heliocentric understanding of the, of the solar system where the planets rotate around the sun. It's that dramatic. Before these words to him really get into, the, into our hearts, the, the, the whole reason we think we exist is for us. It centers around us. God created the universe for us. Because He wanted to give us a good place to live. He redeemed us because we are so valuable. As my dad likes to say, the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. (laughs) God made all things and He made them ultimately for one person, Himself. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. This is a tough truth to get our mind around and an even more difficult truth to get our hearts around. But God's glory is the supreme good. Above all goods, God's glory is the supreme good. And it's that glory that's at the heart of our text today called this message, God's Glory in Poetic Justice. Habakkuk has expressed concerns that God's justice wasn't being served. And like us, Habakkuk doesn't fully grasp the degree to which the universe and and all the events which unfold within its boundaries are a choreographed display of God's glory. God's glory absolutely demands His justice. And God will not allow His glory to be tarnished. That's what He makes plain in our text this morning. And I want to examine this theme in our text under three headings. God's glory in the law on men's hearts. God's glory in poetic justice. And God's glory amongst the nations. So the first place we see God's glory is in His law written on the hearts of men. Justice is something that uh, proceeds from, from the Creator Himself. The law is something that proceeds from the Creator Himself. And we don't need to read the Ten Commandments to know that it's wrong to murder and it's wrong to steal. If you just watch two infants playing, if one steals a toy from another, an infant knows how to cry out for justice. They know that that's wrong, that stealing is wrong. No culture in the world esteems murder as virtue, um, except for maybe ours. 
<laughs> but even all but the most seared of conscience will try to justify abortion as something other than murder because we know deep, deep down that it is wrong. We know that innately. There is a universal, universal standard of right and wrong. Now, where, where does this standard come from? Well, it comes from the image of God. God, God created us after His image. I don't care how hard they try, they will never shake. My sons will never shake my image. They, they look just like me. <laughs> they can't escape it. And similarly, try as we might, we will never shake the image of God because He has made us in His image. That, that moral law of God lingers in our souls and however corrupted by sin, however suppressed the knowledge of God, however seared our consciences become, um, somewhere deep down, God's image remains in us. So we see this plainly in our text this morning. He says in verse 6, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him? And he goes on and there's five woes. So he's saying, Shall not all these taunt Babylon, wicked Babylon? Now who is it that takes up their taunt? At first I thought it was the people of God. The people of God will taunt Babylon and they'll be vindicated. Um, But in verse 5, it said that he, that is Babylon, gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So it's interesting here. These woes are not just from Judah. They're just not just from the people of God. They're from the nations. They're from the peoples. Remember, Babylon pillaged uh, many more nations than just Judah. And now what do these nations, what do these people see? What are they crying out against? What are they taunting Babylon with? Well, we see that what they see is Babylon is breaking God's law. It struck me this week, their accusations match up with many of the Ten Commandments. For example, you shall not steal. The first woe in verse 6, to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. They're stealing. They're taking what is not their own. They're breaking God's law. You shall not covet. At the root of stealing is covetousness. It's greed. The second woe. Woe to him who gets, gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of from harm. Or you shall not murder. This third woe in verse 12, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. They're murderous. The Babylonians are murderous. You shall not commit adultery. Um, traditionally, throughout the history of the Jews and the church, this, this commandment of adultery has been applied to all sexual sin, not just to um, you know, unfaithfulness in marriage. And the Babylonians certainly engaged in this offense. In verse 15, the fourth woe, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Some commentators have noted that 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 probably is referring to to the sin of not just um, unkindness or domineering, but of even homosexual sin. And then, of the most basic of God's commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourselves a graven image. Verses 18 and 19 
What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, and a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold, and there is no breath in it at all. So you see, the Babylonians are are breaking the Ten Commandments. And it's not just Judah, it's not just the people of God who have heard the law read aloud, but it's the nations who recognize this is unjust, this is not right. The law is being broken. The Babylonians here, I've counted six. They've broken six of God's Ten Commandments. And these broken commandments are at the core of what the Babylonian Empire is. So to me, it's, it's striking. The nations and the peoples, most of whom do not worship Yahweh or know Him as God, list these offenses that the Babylonians are doing, and they know and they condemn them based on God's law. So it is a universal standard imprinted on the hearts of men. Now God's glory is displayed in this and His justice in part because the whole world knows God's law. For him to act unjustly would be to tarnish his own reputation. We see an example of how this works in Psalm 79. They cry out, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. And why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. So it's not as though God needs um, the acclaim of the nations to, to justify his actions. But if God does not act according with his character, uh, a charge may be levied against him based on his own standard of law, which every single human being knows in his heart, an accusation could be made that he does not possess infinite perfection, and that he's not worthy of glory and honor, and thus he's not truly God. Obviously no just charge like that could ever be leveled against God, because God never would act against his own standard or against his own character. God is zealous for his glory, and he always upholds his perfect standard. So this is comforting to us because when we struggle with doubt, as we all do, a great question to ask ourselves is, is God going to fail His own glory? The question we often ask is, is God failing me? But the better question is, will God fail Himself? God, God works all things together for good. And that we know that verse, but that verse is best interpreted when we understand that the greatest good is God's glory. God works all things to His own glory. So we can ask ourselves, why am I suffering? Why am I sick? Why is there evil in the world? Why doesn't God act on this or that issue? But we can be assured with those questions that God orchestrates all things for His highest good, for His own glory. God would not give the accuser or the accuser's spawn something by which to accuse Him. And He would never allow His name to be tarnished. We can take great comfort in that, even in our seasons of doubt. Now the second way that God displays His glory here is in God's uh, poetic justice. 
God's glory and his poetic justice. I think the image of God in men also places within us a sense of justice, and we also know innately that kind of principle of what goes around comes around. We reap what we sow. I think that the, the whole idea of karma is kind of a worldly recognition and an attempt to deal with the fact that well, what goes around tends to come around. We understand the principle of justice. We have to understand that also here, God is a storytelling God. God is telling a story with history and with creation. And the, the main character in the drama of history is God. God is the hero of the story of history. Consider what God says about the drama of our redemption. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known. That's the purpose of the church, that the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there was an eternal purpose for the church, and that eternal purpose is that God would display, make known his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He is the central focus, the central figure in our redemption. Now another example of this is the drama as it's seen played out in judgment. Um, Ezekiel 38, 22 and 23. With pestilence and bloodshed I will enter into judgment with him, and I will reign upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. And here's the purpose. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of the nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. His purpose is to show. That word show, that's the verb. I will show my greatness. I will display my greatness and my holiness and make myself known to the nations and they will know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Michael Horton comments... However, the Christian faith is a counter-drama to all the mega-narratives and meta-narratives of this passing age, ancient, medieval, modern, and postmodern. It speaks of the triune God who existed eternally before creation and of ourselves as characters in His unfolding plot. Created in God's image yet fallen into sin, we have our identity shaped by the movements of this dramatic story from promise to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This drama also has its powerful props such as preaching, baptism, and the supper, the means by which we are no longer spectators but are actually included in the cast. Having exchanged our rags for the riches of Christ's righteousness, we now find our identity in Christ. Instead of being a supporting actor in our life story, God becomes a part of, we become a part of the cast that the Spirit is recruiting for God's drama. The poetic and proverbial nature of these taunts, these woes and riddles of the nations put an accent on the poetic justice that they convey. 
God doesn't merely just punish the wicked, but He's a storyteller. He does it in a poetic way. He makes a display of His justice to make a point. So here we'll see that. Here we uh, look in verse 7. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those who awake will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. People who have suffered under the thumb of the Babylonians, who have suffered under the fear-mongering of the Babylonians, will make the Babylonians become a, a quaking puddle. This is poetic justice. Verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. The very material that they have built their kingdom out of, the the blood of the nations, like the blood of Abel, will cry out for justice and it will be their destruction. It's like the Eiffel Tower. You can't build a giant iron structure and expect it not to get struck by lightning. It does get struck by lightning on average about ten times a year. It cries out for it. In the same way, the stone, the, the house of the Babylonians cries out for the justice of God. In verse 11, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam of the woodwork will respond. The things that they have done to ensure their security have become their doom. That sweet poetic justice. Again, verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and become and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. So there's a certain level of levity here and a domineering posture that that they exhibit by their debauched abuse of their captives. And that very thing will become their shame. God says that the nations will mock them. And they'll say, why don't you drink yourself? And we'll see. We'll see your uncircumcision. Those who seem to have been favored of the Lord will be exposed. And they will be exposed as never having been favored at all. They are set apart, not for His delight, but for the chastisement of His true beloved. And they are only destined for destruction. The Babylonians poured out their wrath, but he says in verse 16 that the cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and the utter shame will come upon your glory. Again, one last example of the poetic justice of God here. Verse 17, The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence of the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. This week I was at the park with my kids and I was pushing them on the swings and I got tired so I sat on the swing and I asked Zoe to push me and she pushed me like this far but on my return I had quite a bit of inertia and I knocked her over fairly strong because she had started that um, interaction and it's kind of like that with the the, the violence that the Babylonians um, executed on the nations reverberated throughout the world and those reverberations are kind of building a a tsunami which will in turn overwhelm the Babylonians. This is poetic justice and we must be reminded of the beauty of the poetic justice of the Lord. 
You may not think of it that way, but it is a beautiful, poetic justice. And it helps us to remember that God is a God who will by no means clear the guilty. God's justice is punctual, it is terrifying, and it is reliable. And no one can escape it. No one is exempt. Not even us. But it also helps us to remember the mercy of the cross. That that cup of God's wrath, which is owed to all who trespass against His holiness, was drunk by Jesus for all who believe. That that poetic justice of the divine playwright was put on display at the climax of his drama when, when transcendence was humbled on behalf of sinful and ungrateful men. The other thing that the beauty of the God's poetic justice reminds us of is it helps us to stand in awe of the glory of God. Remember uh, Ezekiel 38:23. God's justice will be displayed, so I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. Who are the many nations in that phrase? I'm a Dutchman by heritage, an American by birth. I'm like the furthest thing you can get from an ethnic ethnic Israelite. Yet I get to marvel at the greatness and holiness of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. I'm a Gentile, I'm unclean, goyim. And yet I know that Yahweh is God. That's what he said. I'll show my greatness and holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations and they will know that I am Yahweh. He is a marvelous God indeed. This leads us to the final way that we see God's glory. The glory of the Lord in the nations. The glory of the Lord in the nations. Um, as I was trying to interpret this text, I struggled a little bit. Uh, at first I thought, well, it's Judah, obviously, that's taunting the Babylons, that, Babylonians. That, that makes the most sense. They're the people of God, and they're the ones who will be vindicated. But, of course, it's obvious it's not just Judah. It's, it's the nations and the peoples that are taunting Babylon. But this did not make sense to me. Not... not all of the nations, in fact, none of them except Judah, are God-fearing, Yahweh-worshipping nations. And some of the things that they say um, do proceed from the image of God in them, but other things make no sense at all off the lips of a, of a pagan, idolatrous person. For instance, there's u- numerous uses of the divine name Yahweh in the, in the passage. Or they say that one of their accusations or their taunts is, you drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Well, what concern is circumcision to a a Persian? Or in verse 14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Or the condemnation of idolatry. Or in verse 20, But the Lord is in His holy temple. But all the earth keeps silence before him. Those things don't make sense coming from pagans. And the only conclusion I've been able to come to is that the final fulfillment of these taunts comes in the last days. And in fact, they're coming right now. 
it's already begun. The nations, by virtue of the Great Commission, are, are recognizing Yahweh as God. We are putting away our idols. The renown and greatness and holiness of the Lord are spreading all over the globe to every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. So people from, from all of the earth are finding safe harbor from the wrath of the Lord under His very wings. So, so even we impure, idol-worshipping Gentiles are coming under glad submission to the Lord. We are learning, as it says, to keep silence before the Lord. So I think it's in that way that the whole earth is right now, in these last days, um, the, these taunts are being fulfilled. Now, if that's true, <laughs> that the final fulfillment of our text today is coming to pass now and will be completed at the last day, and, and I really think it is, and I'll, I'll close with a ver- uh, passage from Revelation that I think, to me, it put the nail in the coffin uh, of that question. Um, but you're welcome to... to uh, Bring me your ideas afterwards if you have better ones. But if that is true, then we, we get to take up these taunts against Babylon ourselves. Babylon being, in the New Testament, the wicked world in which we are exiled. These taunts can give us confidence as we await the glory of the day of the Lord. If we are like Habakkuk and we find God to be slow to deal with the wickedness in the world, we need to remember He is taking his time in order to maximize the fullness of his glory. And that there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that God will not fail his own glory. So then as we look forward to that day when, when Babylon is once and for all put away and the glory of God is is shown forth, I want you to hear uh, Revelation chapter 14 verses 6 through 8. The Apostle John, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and language, and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. I just want to reiterate that. This is the eternal gospel that this angel proclaims. This is what it is. Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and his worship who made heaven and earth, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. It goes on another. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. To God be the glory for his poetic justice. Amen.